Good morning. There it is. I knew I was missing something. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, the house of God, the place of worship, and what we do when we gather there is uh, kind of the next topic in the preacher's mind as he does, goes through his thought experiment. Uh, and we're going to look at that in these, uh, it's not a main topic by any means in Ecclesiastes. It's really, I mean, this is a few verses here, but it's really pertinent to us uh, as we gather uh, each week uh, as a community of faith. Uh, In the New Testament, we know the church is not a building or a gathering place. It's the people of God. Uh, And the gathering place for believers is not a temple or even necessarily a building. I mean, Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Uh, And even in those days, uh, you know, communities often met in houses and they were much smaller than, than what we have today. But nonetheless, the fact is, churches often meet in church buildings. We meet in a church building. And so this gathered community of worship is our focus for this morning. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1, the preacher says this. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are enigma or meaningless. Therefore, fear God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Several years ago, uh, I was interviewing for a ministry position. I uh, made it past the the couple of initial uh, phone interviews, and the church had invited me in to kind of meet with some of the leaders of that church. And so uh, my wife and I, you know, went to the town and and met in a restaurant with a number of the leaders over dinner. And as you would imagine, we were getting acquainted uh, over the meal And they continued asking questions of me, wanting to get to know us a little bit. And finally, it was our turn to kind of turn the tables and ask them some questions. And we started with a very simple, so uh, why don't you tell us about your church? And I kid you not, for the next half an hour, they simply recounted the history of conflict in their church. I mean, everything from... uh, poor pastoral leadership to a, to a church split that happened in a very short history of this church, and everything in between. I mean, you name it, and it was probably in there. Uh, I, I can't recall anything positive that they actually had to say about their church community. It was by far and away, I mean, if you can imagine, like the most awkward interview I've ever been a part of. I think Merrill would say the same thing. Um, I later became pastor of that church, the one you know as First Covenant Grand Rapids. 
totally, totally joking. <laughs> um, some of you new people here are like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? Um, no, as you can imagine, we ran far, far away from that church. That's a real scenario. Uh, the interview with this church, thankfully, went much better. Um, we must, we have to admit that not all of our experiences in houses of God are pleasant ones. And the Polish poet and diplomat Czesław Milosz once wrote to the monk Thomas Merton, his friend, that he wouldn't allow his sons to attend church because he didn't want it to make atheists out of them. Now that may strike some of us as odd or off-putting, especially for those of us who grew up in the church and have many warm memories as as a part of this church or another church community. The church is where we hear God's word spoken to us through pastors and through our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, For many, the church is where I'm most loved and most cared for in times of need. We may have fond memories of receiving a a warm cup of soup or a casserole from a family when a, a loved one has passed away in our family. People have prayed for us, given us warm hugs when we've needed it most. And for many of us, this is the picture that we have of our church community. That being said, I've had experiences in the church that allow me to empathize with Milosh's comments. Christians who praise God and worship services and then spout words of judgment and hate as they walk out the door. In my lifetime, I, I think I've probably been hurt more times by fellow believers in Christ than I have by those who don't believe. And I've been a pastor of a church that greatly hurt me and my family. And so I can empathize in some ways with Milosh's comments. I'm not alone in seeing this disconnect oftentimes within a church community or a fellowship of believers. Jesus spoke some harsh words to some who were apparently very gifted in religious work When he said to them, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Those are some harsh words. I mean, Jesus does not mince words when it comes to communities who claim to represent God, but then defile his name. The preacher is certainly not naive about church under the sun, and he doesn't want us to be naive either. He says, know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, Church under the sun warrants caution. He says, watch your steps when you go into the house of God. So why should we be cautious? First, because this is the house of God. Uh, We don't trifle with God. And when we're coming into his presence, we come in reverence and awe and respect and honor. But secondly, he mentions three times in this short passage He uses the word fool. He says, be cautious because fools run amok in your church. Jesus recognized this. In Matthew 13, he tells a parable of weeds and wheat growing together, uh, representing those who follow Jesus and those who don't. Church is filled with both the foolish and the wise. 
We know this because the problem is not with the church or with those who go to church. It's a problem with every human being who has ever lived except for Jesus. And the problem is that sin has so infected every single one of us that sometimes we do stupid things, uh, whether we follow Jesus or not. Those outside the church, those who are not followers of Jesus, may struggle with this. If someone goes to church but lives contrary to this, what's supposed to be a central activity in their lives, our unbelieving neighbors may be prone in their pain to dismiss God or the church as irrelevant. We need to be honest with those neighbors who don't know Jesus. We, we don't belittle their pain. We don't gloss over bad church experiences. Uh, we need to be honest with them to, and empathize with them. We say to them, sometimes the greatest fools are those who wear their Sunday best and carry Bibles. And sometimes I have been one of those fools. And I'm sorry. So there's a tension that we have to acknowledge about church under the sun. On the one hand, we are all made for a community, for true spiritual community, just as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just as they display unhindered, authentic community and unity with one another, so we are called to that same kind of community and unity with one another. We are created for that kind of community. But on the other hand, as we seek community, we will find that fools and folly infest our communities. So it appears that for the preacher, going to a house of God is not synonymous with being on the right track. Uh, He wants us to avoid the kind of mistakes that fools make when they enter worship. And he goes on to name some of the characteristics of these foolish worshipers that run amok in these houses of God. And there are at least three of them. The first one is that foolish worshipers are blind hypocrites. He says, don't offer the sacrifice of fools. You know, in the preacher's day, people would make sacrifices at the temple, but it would be nothing more than a set of empty rituals with many words and no awareness of God. In other words, they recognize the need for sacrifices, but they do it to kind of sort of keep up appearances. Uh, they make sacrifices to justify themselves and, and to show that others that they're close to God. Even worse, he says that these foolish worshipers, they do this, um, and they have no idea that what they're doing is wrong. They're blind. People will do horrible things in the name of God and often do so blindly believing that God loves it that way. The preacher says this is evil and dangerous. Watch yourself, he says. When he says guard your steps, he means watch your conduct. Don't you realize this is the house of God you're entering? So foolish worshipers today may do the same thing. They may go to church because that's their tradition or because it makes them feel good or because they think that's what makes them a follower of Jesus. But in reality, the act of going to church has become an empty ritual. They don't do it to seek authentic community. They do it to check off a box. And the preacher says that's foolish. Over and over again, the Bible tells us what God wants. Uh, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, is representative of many passages that get at the fact that God wants you. He said, the, the, that passage says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
I want knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God says, I don't want your empty rituals. I want you. Mind, body, and soul submitted to me. Because when you submit to me, you will know me and your life will reflect me. Church is meant to disrupt our denial of what we think about ourselves and about God. If we have any sense at all that we deserve God's mercy and grace, then we need to hear over and over again that there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. There's nothing I can do to make God love me less. Because he already loves me to the fullest extent possible. And we come to church to hear, hear that in some way, shape, or form every week because it's so contrary to the way the rest of the world lives. Foolish worshipers think that they have it all together and they want everyone else to think that they have it all together and that prevents them from finding true, authentic community. The reality is, none of us have it all together. So foolish worshipers are blind hypocrites. Secondly, foolish worshipers love religious talk. Uh, Just notice the number of times he refers to wise speech in these seven verses. Verse 1, he says, go near to listen. Verse 2, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Verse 3, many words mark the speech of a fool. Verse 6, do not let your mouth lead you to sin. Verse 7, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Fools possess religion of the unstoppable mouth. They have little tolerance for quiet. They always chatter. Perhaps fools think that they have it all figured out, and so they need to share that with everyone around them. Perhaps they think that the quantity of church talk and activities in the church indicates the presence and blessing of God in a community. So perhaps look at all that we've done and said becomes the measure of godliness. But foolish worshipers don't know that his words about God are spoken in vain. He doesn't know that to take God's name in vain has very little to do with four-letter words. But taking God's name in vain has much more to do with professing to follow Jesus while our lives show very little evidence of that. The preacher cautions us about our attitudes towards God. He cautions reverence and restraint. He says, God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. There is a massive gulf separating God and human beings. God is holy other. He's separate, distinct, holy, and perfect. And we are broken, mortal, imperfect sinners. The separation mandates that we watch our speech. We need to take proper care to revere God and to honor him with our words and with our lives. Taking God seriously as God will mean that we engage with him personally. That, that after all, is what worship is all about. So foolish worshipers are blind hypocrites, and they love lots of religious talk. And then finally, and briefly, foolish worshipers make empty promises. Their word is not their bond. The preacher cautions, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools, so fulfill your vows. Foolish worshipers make excuses for not keeping promises, and wise worshipers live lives of integrity. Their actions match their words. Their word is their bond. So why is the preacher telling us all of this? Why do we need to know 
all of this about foolish worshipers. First of all, I think he wants us to know that he's not naive about what happens sometimes in houses of God. Uh, And he doesn't want us to be naive either. That church under the sun is not heaven on earth. But secondly, he wants his hearers to know that the presence of foolish people using God's name does not mean that God is absent or that God is not genuinely at work in that community. So, knowing that there are foolish worshipers in our midst, knowing that church under the sun is not heaven on earth, what should we do about it? Some people will quit and leave church altogether. Some Christians may say, I'm done with church or Christian community, but I'm not done with Jesus. And my concern is that some of these Christians may neglect Christian community altogether. They may neglect meeting regularly with other believers who can comfort them and challenge them and encourage them as they seek to follow Jesus. Whether that happens in a house of God or not, we can't neglect meeting with other followers of Jesus. Those who give up on Christian community may, may have an idealized vision of what Christian community should be. I'm reminded of some words from the classic work, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes this. He says, innumerable times a a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and and then try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great sense of disillusionment with other people, with Christians in general, and then if we're lucky, with ourselves. And he later writes, he who loves his dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. We may come into a Christian community with a certain set of expectations only to have them shattered by reality. And when that happens, some people check out completely. The presence of fools for that person negates the possibility that God may be at work in that community. I think the preacher has another another thing in mind, another idea. He calls us to, I think, cultivate a way of life that recovers what the house of God is meant to be. And I think his first recommendation would be to recover the routine. This admonition is hidden in in this little word, when. It says, when you go, he says in verse 1. If means maybe. When designates something certain. There's a routine. And a routine gives a chance to try something over and over again. And in doing something over and over again, we allow that activity to shape us and to change us. Uh, The pattern itself establishes a way of life, a way to to keep coming back to apprenticeship. It's a way of life. We need to recover the routine of regularly meeting with other followers of Jesus Christ for mutual strengthening and comfort and encouragement 
and prayer and worship and study. Secondly, I think he would say seek transformation. We overcome foolishness by embodying what is good and establishing our life and community as an alternate vision and way of approaching church. What is that alternate way? We gather as a church to learn how to be, how to be slow to speak and quick to listen. We gather as a church to grow in humility as we are conformed with the as we are confronted with the one true God in our worship. We grow, we come together to grow in our own Christ likeness as we seek to become more like Jesus. Uh, on, in verse seven, he says to fear God, and I and I don't think that means that we should be afraid of God or terrified at coming into His presence. God presents Himself for our contemplation and adoration and worship, and we remember Him and worship Him with awe and reverence. We acknowledge together that God is God and we are not. God is in heaven, he says. We are here on earth. So we, need, we need to let our words be few. As we see God for who he is, we can't help but to be changed by him. Well, finally, I think we recover what the house of God is meant to be as we remember our mission. You know, so that we remember that the house of God is not an end in itself, it's a means to an end. And that end is the mission that God calls us to as a community of followers of Jesus Christ. The preachers made clear that fools run amok in our churches. They say one thing and they live another way. They love religious talk. They don't keep their promises with, with other followers of Jesus. Uh, these fools may draw attention to themselves with their many words and false personas rather than glorifying God and allowing the church to pursue its mission. Now, William Temple, who was a bishop in the Church of England, once said this, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Let me say this again, because I don't want us to miss this this morning. He says, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Do you believe that? Uh, Because as I observe many churches under the sun in my work, I think many church members believe that the church serves to exist to serve them. Uh, They might believe that the shepherd in Jesus' parable was wrong to go searching for the one lost sheep when he had 99 perfectly good ones sitting right there to care for. They might wonder why their needs aren't being met, and meanwhile, we're surrounded by neighbors who are far from God. Uh, I commented to someone in the office uh, recently, you know, in, in all my years of pastoral ministry, I've never once heard someone complain to me, Pastor, we're just not doing enough to reach our neighbors for Jesus. You know, complaints tend not to go that way. They tend not to go in that direction. So 12 years of ministry, I've never heard that complaint. You know, in some places under the sun, our neighbors know next to nothing of church at all. And the challenge is becoming more and more acute. Uh, 21 years ago, if you were to Google what is the largest religion in America, do you know what you would find? Absolutely nothing. Google didn't exist 21 years ago. So if you instead... 
So if you look it up. They were founded in 1998. Uh, instead, what, what do we do without Google 21 years ago? If you were to open up your Encyclopedia Britannica and turn... I don't, I don't know what we did. Um, turn... Uh, so... 21 years ago, what was the largest religion in America? Uh, you would find that Catholicism was the largest religion in America. It had been and it has been for a number of decades now. Um, if you were to ask that question today, do you know what you would find? The largest uh, religious group in America uh, are what are commonly becoming referred to as the nuns. N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. A uh, simple definition of the nuns are those people who, when asked on a survey, what is your religious preference? And they're given options, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, Buddhist, Hinduism. They check the box that says, none of the above. Uh, their numbers are rising faster than any other group. In the 1930s and 40s, they represented about 5% of America's population. In 1990, it was about 8.1%. So think about that. In half a century, just a 3% rise in their numbers. But then from 1990 to 2008, their numbers nearly doubled to 15%. And then from 2008 to 2012, just five short years, that number jumps to 19.3%. Nearly one in five Americans. And then from 2012 to 2014, so three short years, that percentage jumped to 23%. So nearly one in four Americans would, would mark that box, none of the above. For adults under 30 years of age, that number is a staggering 33%. So one in three adults under the age of 30 would identify as None of the above. The idea of church triggers a trauma response in some people and some of our neighbors. Under the sun, the word church and God may mean the same thing to some people. And for at least one out of four people, they want no part of either one. The church is the instrument of God's mission in this world. God's mission has a church. And God's mission is the renewal of this world through the gospel of Jesus Christ so that human flourishing results. And this mission comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who sent his spirit to dwell in us and among us so that we may be the church. So that we may bring the hope of the resurrection to this lost and broken world. So if you're a member of this church, I hate to break it to you. This church doesn't exist for you. It exists for your neighbor across the street who's twice divorced and contemplating taking her own life because she feels she has no hope. This church exists for the alcoholic next door who curses at your kids to get off his lawn and then staggers into his basement to polish off a fifth of vodka. This church exists for the homeless man who's starving and doesn't have a home and believes because of that that God must not care for him. It exists for the intellectual who thinks he has no need for God because he has science and reason. This church exists for your father, 
your brother, your sister, your mother, your child, and your friend who is far from God. So let me say this again to make sure I'm not mincing my words here. This church does not exist for you. When we, and when we embrace the fact that Jesus sends us into this world, just as the Father sent him, we see our families and our neighborhoods, our workplaces and our communities with fresh eyes because we see them through the eyes of Jesus Christ who came into this world to save a lost and broken world, people like you and like me. That's why he came. That's why he has a church. I'm going to close with this. The missiologist Leslie Newbegin once said that the best hermeneutic of the gospel, that is, the best way that people will see and experience the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a community of men and women who believe it and live it. So let's go and be that church. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? You are God, and we are human beings, and so um, I will let my words be few. Uh, Lord, we know why you came into this world. And you, you came so that we may have life and life to the full. You came so that uh, you would go seeking for that one lost sheep out of the hundred. Knowing that 99 were already in the fold. And Lord, I... We need to ask your forgiveness as the church under the sun. Because we often forget why we're here. And we can often make church about us rather than about you and about the mission that you've called us on. And so, Lord, forgive us for our self-centeredness rather than our God-centeredness. And Lord, we come together as a community to remember who you are and all that you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And that's why we come to the table this morning to remember who you are and why you came into this world. And you came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And you came to save every person who's in this room, but God, you are not finished yet. And you have this foolish, seemingly foolish plan A that you would use us to accomplish your mission in this church through the power of your Holy Spirit. So God, forgive us when we fail and when our attention is not on you and what you desire. Lord, help us to see you for who you are because when we see you for who you are and when we experience your love in your grace and your mercy towards us, and we cannot help but to be changed by you and sent out into the world to share that good news with those who don't know you. 
So Lord, I pray for us this morning as a community, God, that you would redirect our hearts towards that which matters most in this world. That we would seek to honor you with our lives and glorify your name as we seek to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are far from you. It is in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we do pray this morning. Amen.